0: On this episode of "Most notorious: 1971's Mysterious D.B. Cooper case.:
1: Now you're really getting into it, Eric. So yeah, you're falling into the vortex. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Appreciate you being here, as always. So, a little forward to this week's show, all about D.B. Cooper. It is a subject that I admittedly don't know much about, but I've gotten a number of requests over the years to do an episode about him. And I've made a couple of minor attempts to book a guest uh, in the past, but never pushed it too hard. Part of the reason was that many of the books about the case are specific to certain suspects. And like my first couple of Jack the Ripper episodes, I decided that if I was going to cover a case like this, I wanted a guest or guests who came at the subject from an unbiased perspective. So on one of my recent episodes, I mentioned that it was one of the topics on my two-interview list. And one of my listeners, Sue, also happens to listen to the Cooper Vortex podcast. Darren Schaefer is the host of that show and graciously agreed to be my guest today. I was also contacted independently by George McKeon, author of an adult coloring book called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. He has been a guest, by the way, on Darren's show, so they know each other already, and I thought it would be fun to have them both on together to enlighten me, us, us. On this classic American mystery, one that has captured the imaginations of armchair sleuths around the world. Darren and George, so great to have you here. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: So Darren, uh, let me start with you. Uh, What is it about this case that, that motivated you to start an entire podcast about it?
1: That's a good question. So I sort of fell into the vortex probably five, six years ago. And I started to get really deep into it at the exact time where I started a new job. And in this new gig, I work entirely alone. So I listen to 40 to 60 hours a week of podcasts and talk radio. And then having fallen into the Cooper Vortex, I started searching for D.B. Cooper Podcasts. And this is 2016, 2017. And there were a number of shows that had done an episode on D.B. Cooper. So I looked at the search results and I was like, all right, I got 17 shows I can listen to about D.B. Cooper now. And I started burning through them and they were all exactly the same. It was two or three hosts drinking wine and, and would spend 20 minutes telling you about the hijacking and then 20 minutes going over three different suspects. And then in the final five minutes, they would agree on who D.B. Cooper was. And I was so far deep into this. I had already probably read you know, six or seven books on the case by that time. I was reading the forums online. So what I was getting from these podcasts was not what I wanted at all. I felt like I knew so much more than them. I was skipping through their explanation of the hijacking because I just got bored after hearing it so many times. And I was listening to this other show called Naked Mormonism with Bryce Blankenagel, And he was driving like an interstate battery truck when I started listening to the show. And it got successful enough that he was able to leave that job and work on his podcast full time. And I really thought to myself, wow, if that guy can pull that off and make such a good show that I really enjoy... Maybe I could do something similar with DB Cooper. I didn't have any aspiration that it would be, I'd be quitting my job in six months or anything like that. But uh, I actually sent him an email, Bryce Blankenagel, and he got back to me and told me about starting his show and gave me some advice back then that I didn't even realize I would need or want. And so I decided well, if I'm going to do this, I need people to talk to. So I wanted to talk to the authors of these books that I've read, the people who were arguing online all day, every day about D.B. Cooper. So I said, I'm going to email these five people to see if they'll be on my show that doesn't exist. And if two out of five say, yes, I'll make this show. If they all say no, then, well, I didn't really waste any time. And right away, all five people said, yes, they would love to be on the show. So then I was like, well, I got to do this now. So I bought uh, a Zoom little four track and packed up my car and drove to Washington, did those first five interviews. And I thought it would be a fun thing to do for a few months. But here I am years later, still doing it.
0: Ah, oh, amazing. It's great that you've stuck with it and found your groove. So, George, how did you come to put your book together and decide to present it in such a unique way?
2: Well, uh, I come from, I have a long background in book publishing, and probably about a year and a half ago, I decided to dip my toe into the world of self-publishing. And so one of the things, I wanted to go into something in the true crime area. And of course, like many people, I've always been fascinated by the D.B. Cooper case ever since I was a, a kid. I remember first learning about it probably back in the 70s with um, maybe some of your listeners will remember the old uh, In Search Of show uh, hosted by Leonard Niboy. That's how far back we're talking. And so, um, I, you know, I did some research and of course, I found out there are there a lot of books out there on the subject. Um, a lot of great books by authors like Bruce Smith and of course Jeffrey Gray, and so I thought maybe I'll come from this from a different perspective uh, because I am a you know a visual person. So I thought um, a adult coloring book might be an interesting way of presenting this case to to an audience that maybe knew something about it but weren't really ready to make the commitment into a full you know into a, a, a three hundred page book. And also to present it in a more accessible way to a larger audience, um, you know, there's been an explosion of popularity in these adult coloring books in the last few years, especially during the time of COVID. And so I thought this case in particular really lent itself because of the, the subject matter. I mean, there's there's action, there's adventure, there's mystery, there's intrigue, and I I thought that this was um, a really interesting way to present this case to a larger audience in a more accessible way, like I mentioned. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And um, one of the interesting things is that the more, and I think Darren will probably agree with this, the more you know about this case, you realize how little you really do know about this case and how much more you want to learn about this case, because there's so much out there and there's so many unknowns and so many unanswered questions that it's just, it's endlessly fascinating.
1: Oh, I agree with that a hundred percent. I couldn't have said it better myself. I feel like I know less about the DB Cooper case now than I did seven years ago. And I've spent an inordinate amount of time on this.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine I mean, it's got to be fascinating and frustrating. I totally get why you call your show the Cooper Vortex. It it pretty much sums it up.
1: Yeah, I was originally going to call it the D.B. Cooper podcast because I'm that creative. But when I started talking to people, they kept saying, you know, I got pulled in by the Cooper Vortex and I can't escape and the Cooper Vortex. And I just thought, boy, that's a really cool name. I got to name my show after that. Uh, Credit to Mark Meltzer, who uh, coined the term the Cooper Vortex. But I emailed, uh, emailed, I interviewed Tom K. early on in the show, and he told me, oh yeah, you know, when I got into this, I thought it'd be something fun to do for six months, but here I am a decade later still involved. And I sort of laughed at him, but now I'm in that same position. So, sorry, Tom.
0: So, Interestingly, we we just recently passed the 50th anniversary of this famous hijacking, November 24th, 1971. Would you mind walking us through that day, how the events unfolded? Uh, Darren, maybe you wouldn't mind starting with that question.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, George, I've uh, done this. Absolutely, go go for it. (laughs) So uh, the day before Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971, A guy in a business suit and raincoat with a black attache case walks into the Portland International Airport. He buys a one-way ticket to Seattle. He pays with cash. The total price is $20. The only ID you needed to give at that point in time was the gate agent asked the gentleman his name. He said his name was Cooper, Dan Cooper. So the gate agent then writes that on the ticket. Cooper is one of the last to board the plane. He sits in the final row of the aircraft. It's a Boeing 727 that has aft stairs. And shortly after takeoff, he hands a stewardess a note. She hilariously assumes that it's just another old businessman trying to hit on her. So she stuffs it in her purse. He realizes this, so he has to get her attention again. Uh, Excuse me, miss, you might want to have a look at that note. I have a bomb. So she sits down next to him. He shows her his briefcase bomb, which it was several red sticks, some wires, and a battery. Exactly what you would picture like a cartoon briefcase bomb looking like. So he wants $200,000 and two sets of parachutes, two front chutes, which would be reserves, and then two back chutes, which are your mains, uh, ready for him on the ground before they land in Seattle. The FBI um, and Northwest Orient Airlines, they round up his ransom and his parachutes. The plane lands in Seattle. He gets his money in parachutes. He lets the passengers off. Interestingly, the passengers did not know they were being hijacked. He was able to communicate all of his instruction between the stewardesses and the flight crew. Uh, The pilots and the dudes in the cockpit, they never got a look at him. Uh, They also never spoke to him. Oh No, that's not true. They... Cooper talked to him on the interphone at one point, but getting into the weeds a little bit there. Um, So after Cooper has his stuff, he has some new demands. He wants to be flown to Mexico City, but more importantly than where to go, he actually tells the pilots how to fly the plane. He wants the plane to fly no higher than 10,000 feet, no faster than 200 miles an hour, the landing gear will remain down. The cabin will remain depressurized, and the wing flap setting set to 15 degrees. The uh, and then interestingly, he also says he wants to take off with the aft stairs down. And the pilots at this point freak out because they don't even know if the plane can fly with the aft stairs down. So they call into air traffic control. No one at uh, Seattle International knows if. The plane, the 727, can fly with the aft stairs down. So they call Boeing. Boeing confirms, yes, this plane can fly with the rear stairs down. We've tested it. So pilots still, they refuse to take off with the rear stairs down, saying it was too dangerous and a plane filled with fuel. Cooper said he disagreed with their assessment, but would agree to lower the stairs after they took off. With the configuration that he asked for, the 727 didn't have enough fuel, to get to Mexico City, so they debated a couple of refueling stops and Cooper agreed on stopping in Reno to refuel. Uh, the plane takes off from Seattle approximately, I think it's like 750, 740 it takes off from Seattle. Um, the plane r- lands in Reno at 1015. There is no Dan Cooper on board. The money is gone. Two of the parachutes are gone. One of the parachutes is cut up And then the only thing he really left behind was a black clip-on tie. So somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Cooper jumps out and he is never seen or heard from again. There is no Dan D.B. Cooper story before the hijacking and there is none after.
0: Aptly summarized. That's great. So the only evidence left behind was the tie clip.
1: Yeah, he left a black clip-on tie. Uh, it's sort of a cheap one. And then in 1980, Brian Ingram, who is an eight-year-old boy, uh, discovered $5,800 uh, on the shores of the Columbia River near Tina Bar. And that's, that's it. We got the tie and that money fine is really the only physical evidence we have in this case.
2: Now, Darren, did you want to mention the uh, cigarette butts that were left behind as well, but eventually disappeared from FBI, uh, evidence. Yes, that's a
1: great point. So Cooper smoked eight cigarettes while he was on board there and they actually gathered his cigarette butts. And you can read in the FBI files since those three or twos are out on the vault that there was actually a note to, I believe it was Seattle that they sent the cigarette butts to hey, you guys take a look at these cigarette butts, see if you can find any evidence if you can't throw them away. So in 1971, they were probably more concerned about having stinky cigarette butts sit in their office than they were thinking, oh my God, there's DNA on these. So unfortunately, those were thrown
0: away. So multiple people saw him on the plane. Is there a consensus on a physical description of him?
1: There is a consensus on the physical description. You know, he's a, a a white male, but he was potentially Native American or um Latin descent. They called him swarthy or olive skinned. He they put him in his mid to late forties. Um he's pretty average height, you know, five ten to six foot one. He looks like every middle-aged guy in nineteen seventy one.
0: How about his personality? His demeanor, was there anything striking about it or was he attempting to be as unobtrusive as as possible?
1: I think that's one of the most interesting things. He is calm, cool, and collected the entire time. And the stewardess who sat next to him for the majority of the hijacking, she was calm as well as she lit his cigarettes for him and then immediately after the hijacking, she comments that he was, he was polite and never unkind. And she said that at one point in Seattle, when they're waiting to take off, he got impatient, but was never rude to her. He also ordered um, meals for the flight crew because he's like, well, I'm keeping you guys for longer than you would have normally been working. As part of my demands, I demand meals for the flight crew.
2: I've always thought it's interesting that um, you know, in Hollywood, there's always the uh, there's always the stereotype of the hijacker who you know, jumps to the front of the plane and, and waves some sort of weapon around screaming and usually saying they want to be taken to Cuba or something like that, very loud and, and aggressive and panicky. And of course, uh, DB Cooper famously was the opposite of that. Like Darren mentioned, just um, calm, cool, collected, polite, um, which is amazing considering how stressful this situation was for not only the crew, but for but for him as well, especially knowing that he was going to eventually jump from this plane at 10,000 feet.
0: That I'd, I'd imagine is, is part of the mystique of the story. He just sort of appeared out of nowhere, made incredible demands, and then a spectacular exit. And then he's never heard from again. It, it's not a... Typical hijacking story.
1: Oh, certainly. And he didn't physically hurt anyone. So if you're doing an entire podcast about the Zodiac killer, um, a lot of bad stuff happened to a lot of people in that case. But with Cooper, the only real victims were the airline and the insurance company that ended up paying that ransom. I think. The, mo- the most stressful part for the flight crew, and this is just my opinion, is the attention they've received for this over the last 50 years, more than the five hours that they were involved with Dan Cooper.
2: You know, that's true. I just uh, recently doing, doing some additional research, I came across a uh, January 12, 2021 Rolling Stone article where uh, they interviewed Tina Mucklow. And, of course, anyone who knows knows anything about this case knows that she's had a very low profile since this case happened. She really has not wanted to engage um, in many interviews and so forth. And she said in the article that she did not suffer PTSD from this event, that, yes, of course, it was an upsetting situation, but eventually she was young and resilient and got over it. And uh, she said more distressing to her have been people over the years tracking her down and and attempting to interview her for for different reasons.
0: So I, I want to ask you about the bomb he claimed to be carrying. Do you think it was fake or real? You want to take this
1: one first, George?
2: Yeah. Well, in my opinion, I don't think it was real Um, Number one, because as Darren mentioned, um, they described it as uh, four or four. So eight sticks of what looked to be dynamite, but they were sort of bright bright red. Again, sort of like a a comic book version of what a stick of dynamite looks like. And, And from my understanding, they're not typically bright red. They're either sort of gray or sort of brownish, more dull color. Um, and secondly, I just, there really was no reason for the bomb to be real because I mean, really who, who is going to challenge someone who says they have a bomb and I mean, what are they going to say? You know, prove it. I mean, it it, it doesn't, it didn't need to be real. And so in my opinion, I don't think it was.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. The only, I I always say I'm 95% sure the bomb was fake. The only way I could see it being real is if Cooper was suicidal. Then if somebody challenges him or questions him, and this isn't going the way he wants it to, he's trapped in an aluminum tube. So there's no escape. So I think if he is suicidal, then there's a chance the bomb was real. But, you know, like George said, no one is going to say prove it. When you're staring at something someone says is a bomb, you're not going to say, All right, blow it up then. Let's see.
2: Yeah, I I think so. And I I think also the fact that because, you know, because he, after the um, hijacking, he jumped from this plane, uh, putting himself at more risks, you know, more risk to himself than anyone else, including the crew. I think people respond to that as well, and that he took this big, Gamble a big risk, um, his own, you know, putting his own personal safety at risk, and I, some believe, got away with it.
0: We will return after these short messages. Hey, all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factor's scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning, and tired of takeout. Every Factor meal is fresh. Never frozen, chef crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout. And each meal, dietician approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. A perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50 at Factormeals.com slash Notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question how did we get here if you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present you're going to love the throughline podcast from NPR i've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that i had never heard about before and i've gotten insights into well-known historical events Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth colony and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So, how much time would Cooper have had from the point where he jumped to when people started actively searching for him.
1: There weren't boots on the ground in the area they believed he jumped until 40 hours later. So when the plane shows up in Reno, they didn't think he was going to jump, but he did. So then they needed to figure out where he jumped. And looking at the flight path and the the log and the pilots talking to them, What they determined is there was this pressure bump and some oscillations that occurred in between 8.11 and 8.13, depending on which transcript you're reading. And they theorized that could have been when Cooper jumped. But to confirm that, they took the exact same plane, I think it's N467 US, and and flew it out over the Pacific Ocean and pushed a 200-pound sled off the back to see if it would reproduce that pressure bump and the oscillations the flight crew felt. And it did. So they were confident now they knew where the knew about where the plane was and about what time he jumped. And that's how they put together the FBI's proposed drop zone.
0: So the natural thing would have been to look for a parachute, an easy way to figure out where he landed, unless he was able to pack it up or dispose of it. I'm sure this is just one of the many, many things debated about by fans of the case.
1: Oh yeah. And they didn't have a really good ground search until the spring. So like six months later, because the area he jumped in it, a lot of it is really densely wooded, but then you're also going to get some snow in December and January. So to push through brush and the snow is just too difficult. So It was March before they had National Guard. I think there was a a group from the army there. There was a bunch of volunteers, Boy Scouts and police officers that just started stomping through the woods for about two weeks. And they did find a body, but it was of, I believe it was a, a teenage Native American gal who had gone missing years and years prior.
0: So what's the common theory about what happened to him? Many people obviously believe that he survived the fall. Statistically speaking, what was the likelihood of him making it to the ground alive?
1: Very likely, in my opinion. Uh, The book I always recommend, if you think he died in the jump, pick up Marty Andrade's Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead. He doesn't focus on a suspect in that book. Primarily what he does is prove that the jump is totally survivable. I've spoken to many parachutists, which tend to be cocky people anyways, but they all believe that they could totally pull that jump off. All the military people I've talked to believe they could totally pull that jump off. So uh, you also had the Cooper copycats. Uh, All of them survived their jump. So I say he lived. What do you think, George?
2: I, I agree with you. Um, I think that if you're, if you're going to take something like this on you're you have to be pretty certain that you're going to survive a jump like this. Um, I mean, I don't know, Darren, if you want to get into the whole question of the type of parachute that I apparently used or not, that might be interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm down to talk about that. So fly Jack, who is a, a DB Cooper researcher extraordinaire. He has sort of tracked down this information, and I'm a big fan of it. So there is two parachutes left on the plane when it touches down in Reno. One was a reserve, and Cooper actually cut that parachute up and used some of the shroud lines. Uh, assume I assume he used them to tie gear to himself for the jump. And then there was the other main that was unused. And what they found in that other main was two packing cards. And so when you pack a parachute, you have to have this document in there, what the parachute is, its date of manufacture, who packed it, when you packed it, and your parachute packer's license number or something to that effect. And so the parachute remaining on the plane has two packing cards in it. Why does it have two? Uh Flyjack's theorizing, and I pretty much agree with this, Cooper likely took the packing card out of one parachute, looked at it, and then either intentionally or on accident, slipped it into the other parachute that he didn't use. So that tells us pretty much exactly what he jumped with, which is a Navy backpack with a 24 foot conical parachute in it. I think it was 24. Sorry if I messed that up. Maybe it was 26.
0: So assuming he landed somewhere in rural Washington state, what path do you think he would have likely taken to safety?
1: I'll take this one since I uh, I lived there a lot longer than George did. That area, if you go from the top of the FBI's proposed drop zone all the way to the Columbia River, even a little farther south, but anywhere in there, if you dropped me on the ground, it's not very far to a road to railroad tracks to a river. So you don't have to walk very far. It's not this super remote area. There's logging that goes on there. There's residential homes. There's businesses. And and there would have been as well in 71. As a matter of fact, some of the smaller towns might have actually been bigger in 71 than they are today with the logging industry. So it's it's not hard to get out of there. But how did he get out of there? Your guess is as good as mine, Eric. Maybe George has a perfect theory on how he got out of the area.
2: I wish I did, but I don't. I mean, um, I I think, you know, again, we don't know who this man was. We don't know what his background was. I I would have to think that he must have been very resourceful and just figured out a way whether or not there was a co-conspirator. Of course, that's another question. But, um, you know, people, um, depending on what sort of background you have or training, are, are very resourceful and can work themselves out of all sorts of sticky situations.
0: So if he had had a co-conspirator waiting for him down below, then he would have had to have had a pretty good idea of where in the flight to jump out. He he would have known where the flight was going and timed Things well for his escape.
1: Yeah, I I think that's something we still don't know. So I talked to Cliff Ammerman, who was running uh, the air traffic control in Seattle on that day. And one thing I was trying to bully him into saying was Did Cooper dictate the flight path based on the conditions he requested in the aircraft? One of the things being 10,000 feet. You have the Cascade mountain range right there, and there aren't a lot of peaks over 10,000 feet there, but if you're in a 727, you don't exactly want to fly 37 feet over the top of a mountain. So I'm not sure if he actually knew what flight path the plane was going to take, or if he just knew the conditions the plane needed to be jumped from so i don't know the answer the answer to that really what do you think george
2: well i think you're right and i also think that um I'm, I'm, correct me if i'm wrong but you know he he didn't in in so many ways he he planned this very carefully but then in other ways um especially exactly when and where he was going to jump it seemed to be he seemed to just do this by chance sort of uh, letting the circumstances dictate um exactly when this happened and i understand he had some trouble with the aft stairs and eventually had to have the flight attendant tina mucklow help him uh lower the aft stairs which would allow him to jump from there you know the aircraft and you know when you're talking about a A plane moving at speed, we're talking, you know, it could be, what, a few hundred miles difference uh, between where he meant to jump and where he eventually did jump. So, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I I don't think he knew exactly where he was jumping when he exited the plane or where he would land.
0: So, would you talk more about the, the ransom money? As you said, some of it was recovered. What about the rest? What what did investigators believe happened to it?
1: None of the other money has been found. So, C First Bank in Seattle had $250,000 set aside in case there was some sort of ransom situation or a robbery. I'm not exactly sure the logic behind it. But they had this $250,000 set aside where they already had all the bills documented on microfilm. And so they used $200,000 out of that since they already knew what bills were in that. They give that to Cooper. He takes it with him. And then the only bills that have showed up were the ones found by Brian Ingram in 1980 in uh, A State of Decay. None of the other bills showed up. They had casinos and banks and racetracks. They had all those tellers looking for those 20s. A 20 and 71 is equivalent to a $100 bill today. And I used to believe that he totally could have spent all that money and people stopped checking after a while to see if one of those bills was a Cooper bill. But I had Arthur Friedberg on the show, who's a numismatist, and his family wrote the book on U.S. paper currency. It's called U.S. paper currency by Arthur Friedberg. And he right away was like, dude, if, if $9,020 bills go into circulation, the odds that one of those bills turn doesn't turn up in some sort of flag transaction he's just like, it tells him right away none of that money was ever spent. So that's kind of a bummer. I would like to believe that he spent that money and lived a great life, but I guess I got to uh, take the word of an expert there and that he doesn't believe the money was spent and that dude obviously knows a lot more about money than I do.
0: I mean, he sounded like a clever guy. Why would he go through all of the trouble of getting marked bills knowing he wouldn't be able to spend them?
2: Right. I think, I mean, I've always thought that it's more than likely he lost the money on the way down somehow. Um, Again, like Darren said, yes, it would be nice to imagine him on a beach somewhere enjoying this money. But um, it seems to me, based on what we know about the money um, not turning up in circulation, it seems likely or at least plausible that – he lost this money on the way down somehow, or possibly buried it somewhere, and then for whatever reason, either lost it or forgot where he buried it, or who knows.
0: Right. So there are some who believe that D B. Cooper was a man named Richard McCoy, a guy who, having lost money on his first hijacking, tried again later that year to hijack another plane. Would you tell us more about this suspect?
1: So six months after Norjak, which is the Northwest Orient hijacking, the FBI refers to the D.B. Cooper case as. Six months after that, Richard McCoy boards a flight, I think it was from Denver to Los Angeles, something like that. Anyways, he, he hijacks that plane using a very similar M.O. as Cooper he was sloppier in quite a few ways, mostly how he acted and behaved. He also improved on a few things. So he brought his own parachute on board and then asked for parachutes from the FBI. This time the FBI is much sharper about this, so they put tracking devices in the chutes. So he throws those parachutes out the back of the plane and the FBI goes looking for those two chutes not realizing he had his own on board. He gave more specific flight instructions. He was able to land just like three miles from his house, basically exactly where he wanted to. Uh, But he he was sloppy. He drew attention to himself early on. He tried to put a disguise on, and people thought that was very suspicious. He hilariously left his ransom notes uh, at the gate, And so they're like, uh, hey, James Johnson, uh, you have this envelope left behind. And so he had to get this manila envelope with his ransom notes in it back, which is pretty awkward. But then my favorite part about the McCoy skyjacking is he gets home from the skyjacking and immediately his telephone rings. It's the National Guard. They need helicopter pilots to go look for this skyjacker. So immediately after he gets in, I think it was a Huey or something like that, and is flying around looking for himself. And I can only imagine the grin he would have had on his face, flying around looking for himself.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean Richard McCoy. I don't. I'm ultimately, I don't think he was D.D. Cooper, but in many ways, he's my favorite suspect. Uh, because on paper you know he does tick a lot of boxes um, you know first of all he was a green beret um, as Darren mentioned he was a pilot he uh, was a purple heart recipient so there's that he had the, he had the, you know he had the tools to make this happen um, it, he looked he looked a lot like the first sketch um, however, there are other reasons why I don't think he probably was one of them being. Cooper was described as about 45 uh, olive skin, uh, dark hair dark eyes. Richard McCoy was about 29 years old at the time. Um, he had very light blue eyes. Uh, he certainly did not have olive skin and he also had very prominent ears I don't know if you've, anyone if you could look him up on the internet you'll see that well he does generally have fit the description of the sketch. He does have very prominent ears, and I would imagine that that's something that uh, witnesses would certainly uh, note when describing, you know, giving the information for the initial police sketch. So, um, like I said, I I don't think he was D.D. Cooper, but on paper, he certainly um, checks a lot of the boxes. Oh, yeah, I agree with everything you just said, George.
1: Uh, One theory I entertain that's just complete wild speculation on my part is I would be very interested to know if there was a direct tie between D.B. Cooper and McCoy. Because McCoy's skyjacking is so similar, and maybe the few details that D.B. Cooper messed up on, he was like, look, you got to fix this and this on your skyjacking. But McCoy wasn't able to remain calm cool and polite like like cooper was so maybe they knew each other but i have i have nothing to uh support that claim other than boy wouldn't that be cool
2: i think a lot of people do believe that uh dd cooper had some sort of most likely military background and i think you're you're probably right in that uh, obviously mccoy did and i'm sure he had a large circle of friends so it's it's certainly not unlikely that one of his, let's just say acquaintances that uh, over the years could definitely have been uh, D.B. Cooper.
0: How was McCoy finally caught? One of McCoy's
1: National Guard buddies turned him in, said he looked like the sketch and seemed like he would be the kind of guy to do it. And so when the FBI showed up at McCoy's house, his uh, $500,000 ransom was in his closet, minus $30 he spent with his wife getting lunch. But then the McCoy story gets even crazier after that. So he like breaks out of custody and then he's put in this jail. And then in jail, he makes a gun out of dental paste and uses it to steal a garbage truck and rams through the gate and then goes on. Uh, some weeks long chase with the FBI ends up in North Carolina and uh, shoots at a FBI helicopter and then runs back to his house where an FBI agent is waiting and then shoots him. And that agent, when he shot McCoy, I think his name's Nick O'Hare, Nick O'Hara, he said, "When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D b. Cooper.
0: Wow. So on this show. J. Edgar Hoover's name is often mentioned, usually disparagingly. He he was still alive when this happened and director of the FBI. Was this something that was important for him to solve, or did he have his mind on other things?
1: You know, I actually don't know much about J. Edgar Hoover. What about you, George?
2: Well, I no, I mean, I've always thought that if there was any sort of connection that it would be a CIA connection rather than an FBI connection. Um, and that's based on the whole uh, Air America program and how they had their own, You know, Air, I don't know how much your audience is familiar with Air America, but um, it was a passenger and cargo airline owned and operated by the CIA, um, mainly tasked with supplying uh, you know, covert missions during the Vietnam War, and the 727 was one of the aircrafts, you know, in their, you know, in their fleet, um, and of course they, the reason they used that was because of the um, aft stairs, which which they were able to use to you know, push things out the back, either troops or supplies or, or so forth. So I mean, I don't know how much stock I hold in that, but that's so I always thought if there was any sort of government connection it would it would probably be be the CIA rather than the FBI.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't see any like direct involvement from the CIA, but what I definitely think is possible is you had some dude overseas working for the CIA who was like, hey, I have an idea. I don't really think it was sanctioned by the CIA or anything like that. Although there are some people that float E Howard Hunt as a suspect in the DB Cooper case, so that would be interesting.
2: Right, I don't, I don't believe that there was a, a you know an actual conspiracy, but I, I mean, there it is possible that whoever DD Cooper was, it's possible that he was he was associated in some way with Air America. I don't, I mean, just because of the seven twenty seven connection. Um, of course, we'll never know.
1: Yeah. Somehow Cooper knew more about the plane than the pilots of that plane knew. It's a weird position. And also, he knew the plane could fly with the stairs down. He knew the plane could take off with the stairs down. But weirdly, he didn't know how to lower the stairs. Which, that's an odd combination of information.
2: Right. And and again, I think it's interesting because we're talking 1971. And, of course, now, if, if you want to know anything, you, you jump on Google and, and in five minutes you have your information. But, of course, back then, very few people knew of the capabilities of that aircraft outside of um, you know, Boeing, the, en- you know, the engineers who designed this plane, and maybe also some uh, people with military background. So, you know, a select few people knew of the capabilities of this particular aircraft. So it's, it's very interesting that um, whoever D.B. D. D. Cooper was probably fell within those two communities, either someone from Boeing or someone with a military background.
0: Back again after a quick break. And once again, we have returned. So a few years ago, a woman named Marla Cooper came forward with a surprising story about a suspect that got a lot of national attention. Can you tell us more about who she believes D.B. Cooper really is?
1: Yeah, I just hung out with Marla. So Marla comes forward uh, to the FBI in like 2009, 2010-ish. And then sort of her story becomes public late 2010, early 2011, just in time for the 40th anniversary. But basically she remembers the story of her uncle, L.D. Cooper, that weekend of Thanksgiving 1971, and all these other details. And she starts talking to her family and uh, takes a polygraph with the FBI, and she passed that polygraph. So the FBI actually became pretty interested in this story when it came out. Um, And then it just sort of fizzled away like some of the other suspects that come out in this case do. Uh, An interesting thing about the D.B. Cooper case is that there are hundreds of confessions. And I'm not exaggerating that in any way. There are hundreds of people who have confessed to this crime. And if you Google cases with multiple confessions, the only thing that really comes up is you have like a false or coerced confession. And then later the real perpetrator confesses. But I can't think of another case where multiple people, dozens, hundreds of people have confessed to a crime. And You do have these suspects that come out usually on their deathbed. Hey, I'm Dan Cooper. And if your loved one says that to you, Eric, if your grandpa said that to you on his deathbed, I'm sure you love the guy and trust him. So on his deathbed, is he going to say something to you that's a lie? So you believe him and then you have to prove his story correct. And that's happened to a lot of people I know.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Deathbed confessions come up occasionally on this show. And, I mean, you have to take them with a grain of salt, uh, of course, because they're often made with few people around and without time for follow-up questions by police. Uh, So, George, do you have anything to add regarding Marla Cooper's story?
2: Um. No, I don't have anything to add specifically on her story, but regarding these, you know, confessions, I think it speaks more to the idea that people in a strange way admire what D.B. Cooper did, I think. And so in their own way, I mean, I I suppose it's in, in probably 99, I mean, I think most likely in all these cases, it's a little bit of a case of stolen valor in that um, they want to be in their own way associated with this case and associated with this person who, like I said, in in a strange way, they they admire um, what he did in that some people see him as um, an antihero and that um, it was a victimless crime. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but a lot of people do feel this way. Um, And how often are there cases where where people are you know standing in line essentially to confess to a crime a federal crime at that uh, one that if you know they were convicted they'd be sent away for the rest of their life um, I think again it speaks to the 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 nature of this particular case and in, in, in that it's um, I mean I think it's safe to say that a lot of people in see DBE DB Cooper as um, a a badass, I guess is probably the best way to put it. And in their own way, they want to be associated with with this this event.
1: Yeah. And if I ran over a group of school children, nobody else is going to confess to that. Right. If it's this crime where you're this gentleman skyjacker who's smoking and drinking bourbon and while the stewardess lights his cigarette, And then you jump out, like George said, like a badass into the night, into the woods and get away with it. Boy, that's a a lot cooler story than I was texting and ran over a group of kids at a bus stop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what are some of the crazier confessions you've heard? Do any come to mind?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some come to mind. My favorite confession has got to be Barb Dayton. So, Barb Dayton was born Robert Dayton. She was the first person in Washington state to get gender reassignment surgery before the hijacking. She did it in 68 or 69, I believe. And then her life's not really going well. She's working as a librarian. She's sort of unfulfilled. Uh, so, she decides to prove to herself that she's still a badass, dresses back up like a man. Commits the skyjacking, throws the money in the garbage, essentially, because it was never about the money, and returned to her life as a librarian in Seattle. Then years later, uh, confessed to her friends, Ron and Pat Foreman, about being the skyjacker. And they wrote a book about it, The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes. So that is... I mean, if you want a wild confession, how about one from a woman, a trans woman? So that one's one of the more wild.
2: Is there any confessions that stick out to you, George? I mean, Darren, I think I have to agree with you. I mean, I mean, of all the confessions, <laughs> that's, that one is, I would say, the most colorful for sure. I mean, I think Barb Dayton could probably have you know, a Netflix series just on, just on her life alone. (laughs) I'd watch it. I would too.
0: Yeah. So are there any other suspects that you think might have some legitimacy to them?
1: Oh, certainly. There are a lot of suspects like that. I think because what we know about Cooper is so vague that it's tough to disprove someone as a suspect. I'm a fan of Wolfgang Gossett. I think he's very interesting. Um, I like Ted Braden quite a bit. He's very interesting. James Klansnick is interesting. Uh, William J. Smith is another suspect that I just can't disprove him enough in my mind to eliminate him. Uh, you feel the same way, George? You have like five suspects. You're like, eh, it could be him.
2: Yes, I, d- I do. But I think it's important to note that um, you know no one was ever charged for this crime. So you know, with the vast resources of of the FBI and the well over um, is it well over a thousand suspects? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Darren. That they interviewed. No one apparently fit the bill close enough to, you know, move forward or to charge with this crime. So while all of these suspects are very interesting, uh, the FBI themselves didn't think anyone, um, you know, there's enough evidence pointing to any particular suspect to charge anyone with this crime.
0: Could you talk more about Wolfgang Gossett, who who he was and some of the things that Make him a tempting suspect.
1: Wolfgang is another gentleman who confessed to the crime. He confessed to both of his sons on their 21st birthdays. He also confessed to two different lawyers, one in Utah and one in Oregon. Wolfgang Gossett was a veteran, he was a survivalist, he was a Mormon, he was a Catholic priest. He performed exorcisms. He developed a paranormal radio show and was the mentor to Clyde Lewis. There is a crazy YouTube video you can pull up uh, if you just type in like Wolfgang Gossett exorcism, where it's a short news story on a local Salt Lake channel where he's, you know, basically explaining how he performed this exorcism at this house for these people. Um, And was also investigating for ghosts. He's a really interesting suspect. I talked to his son, Greg, quite a bit. And Greg is in the interesting position where he told me straight up, he's like, you know, Wolfgang, my dad, he was not a good father. He, He was a womanizer and a gambler and he got into all this trouble and he wasn't around and he told... Uh, Greg told me these like sad stories about his dad, like abandoning him and all of this. So he's not his father's biggest fan, but what he does want to know, and he he isn't the one pursuing this, he's waiting for others to do it, is he wants to know the D.B. Cooper confession. Was that true? Was it just another lie his father told he would just like to know the answer, yes or no, and then he can move on
0: with that part of his life. He, he sounds like one of those characters that, that likes to embellish things a lot. Someone with a big imagination and bragging about being D.B. Cooper could be another notch in his belt of fantastic tale-telling. <laughs>
1: I agree 100%, and one of the things I think is interesting about Gossett is he was the guy who would go around bragging about stuff, but the only people he ever told about being D.B. Cooper were those two lawyers and his two sons who he made them swear they wouldn't say anything about it until after he died.
0: Uh, Darren, you've positioned yourself with with your podcast, I would imagine, As a guy with a finger on the pulse of things, you must get feedback from your audience about this all the time. Who's the fan favorite for a suspect among our listeners?
1: I have a couple answers for that. So the, the suspect that I was asked to cover the most is Ed Edwards, who basically committed every unsolved crime you could think of. He killed Teresa Hallback, he killed John Binet Ramsey, he was the Atlanta child killer, he was the Zodiac killer, he committed some murders in Portland and Montana. Uh, Basically, every unsolved crime was committed by Ed Edwards, and D.B. Cooper also got thrown in there. And I just don't see any connection at all to Ed Edwards being Cooper. He didn't look like him at all. It's just totally untrue in my opinion. Um, I probably received like 35 requests to cover Ed Edwards and nothing else like that. As far as a consensus in my audience, I definitely don't see one. I'll do an episode. Uh, let's say I do an episode on Rackstraw. I'll have four people that'll reach out to me and say, oh yeah, you nailed it. That guy's totally right. It's Rackstra." And I'll also have four people email me saying, why did you cover Rackstraw? That story is ridiculous. So I, I definitely don't see a consensus in my audience.
0: Ed Edwards, right? That, that's his name?
1: Ed Edwards. So um, there's a book by John Cameron. Uh, John Cameron wrote a book called It's Always Me. Uh, it Was Always Me about Ed Edwards. Uh, basically committing all these crimes. He was convicted of killing a few people. One of them being like his adopted son, not a great guy. He wrote a book in the sixties or maybe early seventies about being a reformed criminal while he was still actively committing crimes. I can't remember the name of that book off the top of my head, but for a while I was, I wanted a copy, but it was a little too expensive for me and, I'm not a big fan of the Ed Edwards case.
0: Have you had him on your show yet?
1: I had, uh, Ed Edwards is, I think he died in prison, but, uh, I had John Cameron on the show who wrote the book. And, you know, in, in my opinion, John Cameron's a great guy, amazing piano player. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about John Cameron, but, I think that John Cameron is one of Ed Edwards' final victims. I think he was a a, a charming guy who could manipulate people. There's obviously a track record for that. And so I think when John Cameron, who was a prison guard where Ed Edwards was being held, um, I think Ed Edwards swindled him into into doing this work for him and getting this legacy out for him. John Cameron actually lost his job over his relationship with Ed Edwards.
0: Interesting. So I'd like to ask you both about DNA evidence. Is there any, if so, has it been tested? Have investigators come to any conclusions, uh, regarding DNA or the lack of DNA in this case? Is there any DNA, George?
2: Well, I mean, I know that they're um, – well, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, the, you know, the cigarette butts are no longer around. But I would, have, I would think that they would have been uh, the best possible candidates for DNA extraction. Of course, they're no longer around. But I think uh, Darren can certainly speak uh, better to the DNA found on the clip-on tie. So there,
1: the FBI stated for a while, and especially in like 2011, that they had a partial DNA profile that they could use to rule people out, but not necessarily prove exactly who it was. Um, and I believe they said they tested LD Cooper against it, Dwayne Weber, and then I can't remember if there was a third one, but what is a partial DNA profile? Where did they get that? Um, Do they even know that that's Cooper's DNA? I think they weren't sure of those answers either. So that's why they stopped (laughs) sort of going down that route. And then in 2019, that uh, final hunt for DB Cooper documentary had uh, Eric Eulis and Tom K in it. And they were able to pull a DNA profile off the tie. And they believed it was DB Cooper's DNA. Well, unfortunately, it came back it was Tom K's DNA. So we weren't any closer to figuring out who uh, who Cooper was than we were before that. So I don't I don't think there's any DNA in this case. I know the people always talk about the Golden State Killer case being able to be solved with ancestral or fa- familial DNA. I'm no scientist, so forgive me about that. And I would like to see the Cooper case solved the same way, I think, but we don't have any DNA that I'm aware of. He also drank two drinks on the plane. uh, One or two, I guess, depending on what you're reading. And his cups just sort of got mixed in with all the other passengers' cups, so they couldn't even be sure which one he drank to pull fingerprints off. I think they believed they had a solid palm print on the chair he was sitting in, but people don't usually get their palms printed, especially in 71.
0: So what would have to happen for this to be conclusively solved? Like you've said, lots of people have confessed to being D.B. Cooper. Obviously, just a confession doesn't cut it. What proof do you need? I would need a confession either
1: from the person who would likely be at least ninety years old today or a family member. and along with that, I want to see I want to see a ticket stub, I want to see the parachute, I want to see a, a couple of twenty dollar bills. Because, like you said, I mean, a confession's not enough at this point. So we need a little bit more. We need the money. We need the parachute. If you happen to have a ticket stub, George, do you see any other way this could be solved?
2: Yeah, I think the money—the uh, money—is the key. Um, because, you know, again, a confession really doesn't. I mean, we—you know—there are thousands of those as we discussed. I think um, some of the original money would be, to me, very convincing, along with a confession.
0: So please explain this to me, if you can. The fact that only part of the money was recovered, it would mean that the money was separated at some point by someone. Someone put their hands on it. So if, if Cooper had lost it, if he had, then someone found it.
1: Now you're really getting into it, Eric.
2: So you're pulling into the vortex.
1: (laughs) One of the crazy things about that money find is where it was. So it's like 15 20 miles outside the flight path as the crow flies. Uh, If you believe the FBI's drop zone. There's no waterways that would lead to that part of the Columbia River. They've done some other testing and waterways that would feed into the Columbia, but they weren't able to get. Tom K actually bundled up, I want to say it was $25 bills, and put a card on there, and it said, you can keep this money, but please call me and tell me where you found it. And so he threw a bunch of those bundles into the Washougal River because there was a theory for a while that Cooper jumped a little further south, maybe entered the Washougal, and then the Washougal carried the money to the Columbia, and then the Columbia brushed it onto the shores at Tina Bar. So he throws these bundles into the Washugal at a couple of different points, and on two of the three, somebody actually called him back, and none of the bundles traveled more than a mile or two in a period of like a year and a half. So money just doesn't float downstream like that. Um, I've been working on talking to this other dude who he's, uh, I can't even remember his title, but he he's an expert on the Columbia River and he's like, you know, money doesn't wash up. We don't see money. We don't see paper wash up on the shore. That's not what we see. So where the money ends up on Tina Bar, just absolutely, there's no explanation For how it got there. The wind would have been blowing in the opposite direction. So if the plane's on the flight path. And he jumps out. He's going to drift a little bit east. Um, The money like I said. Is 10 to 20 miles west. Of where the plane was. And then interestingly. Tom K has done some recent work on this. He has a, a paper published in. I believe it's called. Scientific reports. Where it's the first use of analyzing diatoms in a forensic investigation. So I'm no scientist, but basically a diatom is this microscopic plankton-like algae, single-cell boring thing, and it sort of grows this glass around it. They only live for a few months, then they die. Well, on the money found at Tina Bar, Tom K discovered this species of diatom ...that only blooms in the spring and summer. There are no winter diatoms on the money. So that tells us Cooper jumps in November... ...but the money gets wet in the spring or summer... ...and then is dry the rest of the time. So does that mean the money was put there... eight months before Brian Ingram found it? Or was it put there... ...got wet in the Columbia in the spring and summer somehow ended up on Tina Barr there, and then didn't get wet again. It's another thing we've found in this case where instead of giving us some answers, it just adds a ton more questions.
2: Now, Darren, do you want to also speak to the idea of the money originally being uh, given to Cooper in what are called packets, and, the, and then the way uh, the money was found by Brian Ingram?
1: Yes, I would like to talk about that, and I've spoken to a couple of bankers, and this is another thing Flyjack really pointed out to me, where when he first started talking about it, I was like, who gives a shit, bro? I don't care about the lingo that much, but after talking to some bankers, there is differences. So the, the money would have arrived likely in bank bans, which would be packets of 100 bills. Those packets of 100 bills would then usually be bundled. And according to the people I've talked to with $20 bills, it's either three packets or five packets in a bundle. And then you would put rubber bands around the bills that way. So the way the money is found on Tina Barr, Brian Ingram said that the rubber bands were still on tact holding this bundle of packets together. And when they picked them up, the rubber bands fell apart. Uh, I haven't seen anything specifically if there were bank bands still on there. But if the money got wet and was on the beach in the sand, the paper bank band is definitely not as durable as the fancy fiber, cotton, whatever money is made out of. So it's it's possible that the the paper bands just sort of disintegrated. So, yeah, he finds he finds the money just like that, which is even more kind of hard to explain because you had sort of this dredge theory. Cooper landed in the Columbia, maybe, and then a dredge went by and scooped up all the sand, and then the money went through the dredge and was spit out on Tina Bar. Uh The idea that it could stay together like that, going through the dredge, I just don't buy it. Plus, the, the diatom information we have. And then you have this Palmer report from years and years earlier about sort of what soils and deposits and dredge spoils are on the, on the ground there. It's another thing. Like I said, it, it only adds questions. It doesn't provide any
0: answers. <laughs> okay. So we've finally dipped our collective toe into the actual vortex here and i'm going to pull it back out now and anyone who wants to head back in they can do so through your podcast which is available pretty much wherever podcasts are found yep
1: wherever you get your podcast the cooper vortex check it out uh we were on facebook twitter instagram my show's badass and it's totally free check it out Especially the episode I did with George. It's phenomenal, right, George?
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Darren. I don't know about that, but I appreciate it.
0: And George, your book again, it is called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper.
2: Yep. It's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble and uh, independent bookstores as well.
0: Well, thanks so much uh, to both of you for coming on. It's been fun.
1: Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure
0: again i have been speaking to darren Schaefer, creator and host of the cooper vortex and george mckeon author of the mystery of db cooper this has been another episode of the most notorious podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world i'm eric rivenis and have a safe tomorrow